Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Jen Huntley on the show, and we'll be talking about her wonderful book, The Making of Yosemite, James Mason Hutchings, and the Origin of America's Most Popular National Park. Long ago, when I lived in California, I used to hike in and around Yosemite. And I remember thinking, this is a really marvelous place. I put it in the category of nature. That is something that is uplifting. I think I get that from romantics. And something that was not made by the hand of man. There's one sense in which, of course, it wasn't made by the hand of humans. Obviously, it's a natural habitat, a geological formation. But there's another sense, and this is the sense Jen points out in The Making of Yosemite, that the park was in fact, made by people. And she tells us who they were and what they thought and what they tried to do and what they did. And of course, what they did was they created America's most popular national park, but they did it for reasons which you'll find somewhat surprising. Some of them are obvious commercial reasons, but when you look deeply into it, and Jen certainly has, these people were thinking different thoughts than we think when they created Yosemite. They weren't exactly members of the Sierra Club. Let's put it that way. It was a park consistent with the late 19th century, values that the people who created it held. And that alone is reason enough to to read the book, to understand kind of strange origins of the park. So I really enjoyed talking with Jen today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Jen. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm glad to hear that. I know you're not doing okay because we talked about it in the pre-interview, but uh, I appreciate your pluck. Today we're talking with Jen Huntley about her book, The Making of Yosemite, or Yosemite as I used to call it, James Mason Hutchings and the Origin of America's Most Popular National Park. Uh, So popular is it that uh, I have been there many times and I've hiked it and uh, areas around it. It's, it's It's a very beautiful place. Uh, I think it's known to all Americans. It, I believe it would be, it, it is, I think, our most famous national park and, and the most popular. So uh, I don't know how many people go there, but it's a heck of a lot. They have a, they have a supermarket there on the valley floor there, and uh, it's a p- pretty remarkable thing. Um, I didn't know anything about the origins of it, uh, really, and so I was glad I got to take a look at Jen's terrific book. And so she's here to tell us. Uh, all of those of you who've been to to the park and are interested in the history of the park, how it is interwoven into American history and American environmental history. So we thank you for writing the book and thank you for being on the show. Uh, let's thank begin, you. certainly, let's begin the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks, Marshall. Um, my, I have been living in Reno for 20 years, but my connection with the Sierra Nevada mountains goes back um, several generations, actually. My um, ancestors came to California in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and my great-grandfather and my grandfather built a small ski cabin in um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, quite a bit north of Yosemite. Um, <clears throat> but I grew up in, in spending my summers in the mountains, and so I've always had a very um, deep relationship with them. And uh, even though I didn't spend a whole lot of time in Yosemite itself, I just became very fascinated um, with the mountains of California and and California landscapes. But that is not what actually drove my interest in the subject. Um, My original interest in, um, in Hutchings more than Yosemite came out of the fact that I was studying as a graduate student with two mentors. One is Scott Casper, 
who is um, whose scholarly area is the history of the book and print culture. Mm -hmm. And the other of my mentors is Elizabeth Raymond, whose interest is in landscape um, and landscape studies from an American studies. They're both coming from an American studies background. So I was looking to wed these three things that I'm interested in the, the far West California Pacific Rim in the 19th century, which I'm, always been I lived in I've always been fascinated by um, print culture and landscape and I had this inkling that there was some relationship between the way that people in the 19th century presented landscapes and and environments through the medium of print and then through the medium of photography which was these uh, the technologies of both print and technology were were developing so rapidly at the same time so just as our perceptions of things are shaped by the medium of television, video, and the internet, and the amazing things that are happening with the inter- internet, like our conversation today. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, you know, what was, I, I had this question, what was happening with the, ch- the changes of media and how was that affecting the way people related to the environment, both the kind of commercial capitalist extraction of resources like gold and lumber and um, in the far West. And then increasingly these perceptions of landscapes as special and sacred that need to be set aside from that kind of development. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started my question, my, my research into this topic was what is that intersection between print and landscape? And I, I came across Hutchings in the Bancroft Library um, just as a person who is an incredibly prolific publisher in San Francisco um, with the Hutchings California Magazine and these letter sheets and all these things. And he was describing all kinds of California landscapes. So my initial approach to the subject was just that. And I actually really shied away from taking on the Yosemite story because I thought it was just so fraught with um, public perceptions and other historians had already done all this work and I I didn't really want to take them on, you know. I wanted to play in my little obscure corner (laughs) of of print print culture and landscape. Um, But I wrote my dissertation and and it got accepted as a book with – with the UP um, Kansas Press. And at that point in time, they really strongly encouraged me to look at Yosemite for obvious reasons, that it was a much more marketable mm-hmm. subject for mm-hmm. them. And um, the people who reviewed, the peer reviewers who looked at my original proposal also made a very convincing argument to me about pursuing Yosemite. So over time, I focused more and more on Yosemite itself. And I found, I found that... Um, kind of backing into the subject of Yosemite through the experience of Hutchings gave me a very different perspective on this landscape than people who have taken it up because they love Yosemite so much. Um, I mean, I love Yosemite as much as everybody, but I'm, I started looking at the story in a really, through really different eyes because I was essentially, uh, unbeknownst to me when I started this, um, but by the time I finished my dissertation, it became clear that I was picking up uh, the underdog, the, the person who had always been kind of reviled and, and set up as a as this crass developer. And I thought, this isn't the guy I've been, you know, becoming familiar with, you know, Mm -hmm. reading about, this isn't the person I've gotten to know. So I, um, so I started asking questions in a different way, I think than most people have. And I think that has really um, set the story up to be a a very different narrative than, than what, um, what is common has commonly been happening in the history of Yosemite. Well, let's actually begin with that. What what is the uh, received view about the history of Yosemite? What is the sort of heroic narrative or whatever narrative <laughs> you would get in a high school textbook? Right. Yeah. Well, the received view is that um, you know in the middle of the gold rush when every every all the white people in California were destroying everything, um, there there were a few uh, very 
far-seeing gentleman um, whose names we don't know, which is actually a really important part of the story, um, uh, who who were referred to in John Kness's letter as gentlemen of taste and refinement, mm. um, who proposed that uh, this this they were able to see beyond the the grubbing for economic value that there was something very special in this particular landscape and that this particular landscape needed to be set aside um, in perpetuity. And it is that, that these, that they were able to see beyond their, um, the values and institutions that structured their mid 19th century existence. And then along came Hutchings in the story, in the, in the traditional story. And all he wanted to do was build a hotel and make a lot of money off of Yosemite. So he had to be, um, the narrative, the standard narrative pits these um, very well-meaning Yosemite commissioners who are, you know, trying to defend the sacred landscape against this kind of wily entrepreneur, Yosemite um, Hutchings, who is, you know, just out to make a buck off of, off of, the scenic and thank goodness for national parks everywhere. But the Yosemite commissioners finally, you know, vanquished Hutchings and, uh, and the Yosemite park was able to continue to exist and become a national park and other national parks grew out of that. And yay, aren't we happy we have national parks. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not right. Well, I mean, I'm I'm certainly happy we have national parks. <laughs> yeah, that last part's right. Yeah. yeah. So 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 in your telling, what's the beginning of the story? I mean, presumably, there were no white people there. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I begin this story um, in England because I think it's very important. Were white people there? Well, yes, we're there. That for a fact. There was an abundance of white people in England. Um, I think it's very important to understand what kinds of assumptions and values the Anglos who were coming to California brought with them. And I use this term Anglos. I got a lot of flack from my, um, you know, advisory committee about this, but that's what whites in California called themselves at that time. And it's important to me to use this term because I'm referring to a particular kind of Atlantic mindset in the mid 19th century that is English. It's the Eastern coast of the United States, like New York, um, Boston, Washington, DC. And it's also many of the people who are coming from Europe, from France, Mm -hmm. who are all coming to California in this great gold, gold rush wave. And it's what Eric Hobsbawm calls the first uh, great international expression of capitalism where Mm -hmm where all these different Europeans come together and they come into California with these very specific ideas about what they're there to do, which is essentially get incredibly stinking rich, um, pulling gold out of the ground. And if it, if it's not, if they can't find enough gold then they're going to get stinking rich doing something else, speculating in San Francisco real estate for many of them, or, you know, lumbering or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, where do those ideas come from and how did those ideas shape the, the, um, the, both the print culture and the attitudes towards environment. So I start the story in England and I, found um, in researching Hutchings' background, he, he was 40 years old before he even left England, which, you know, in those days was was fairly well along. Um, he grew up in the, in the, he was born in 1820, and between 1820 and 1840, he, England really saw this emerging, this flourishing of a kind of middle-class bourgeoisie culture um, that was really centered on um, things like science, scientific understanding of how everything works together um, of, of landscape. They became, they were very um, interested in looking at, at uh, landscape aesthetics. People would take um, weekend trips out into the countryside to learn how to draw, you know, yeah. landscapes. Um, and, and they were very interested in consolidating a sense of using both science and landscape 
as um, metaphors almost for organizing society, for creating a vision of social order that was rational, where everything fit together. Um, there's kind of this organic, smooth way that things work together in, in their image of, uh, say, how, uh, how geology uh, functioned or how biology functioned. Um, and they were very interested in consolidating power, um, political power. They had economic power, but they were just starting to get political power, this middle class in England. And they felt that they needed to um, uh, argue, make a case for a, a power system that where everybody had a place, everybody worked together. It wasn't all a bunch of radical working class people um, rioting in the streets on one side. And it wasn't a bunch of, uh, of privileged aristocrats mm-hmm. um, on another side. So this was their worldview. Um, and, and then they expressed this worldview through print culture, which completely exploded during Hutchings childhood, just, um, England went from like one or two magazines um, pre-1820 and then with the emerging technology of, of print in, in the 1820s, 1830s, um, exploded to, you know, over 100 magazines. That's so right, steam-powered presses. That's right, I wrote exactly. about this, yeah. That's right, steam-powered presses and, and paper-making for, mm-hmm. for Drinier, paper-making machines. Um and the ability to uh, produce um, woodcut engravings. A lot of a lot of things were illustrated with woodcut engravings. That becomes very important to Hutchings too. So he he has these assumptions about order, about social order, and how things need to fit together in a in a well functioning, healthy society. And he brings those ideas to California, and he finds himself in the California Gold Rush which is another era in our history that has been completely romanticized um, in popular culture, at least history's doing a little bit better of a job of, of kind of looking at that more realistically. But, but our romantic view of the gold rush is that all these, you know, poor people walked across the country came, you know, they were able to pull gold out and start a new life for themselves and everything was wonderful. Um, Whereas, in fact... You mean that didn't uh, happen? Yeah, it, it did. <laughs> it happened for a couple of people. But, you know, the great 49 rush uh, brought tens of thousands of people into a place that had no, no infrastructure, no social infrastructure, no physical infrastructure. Um, there were no roads. There was no a transportation network. There was no law enforcement there was no legal code it was california was just um just this very rural backwater um kind of place and very uh ethnically mixed there were a few uh new england anglo whites that had married into mexican families in california but they had adopted spanish as their language and and they were working within that california system and then there were, you know, hundreds of tribes of, of native Californians, indigenous people. And um, they were kind of living a sleepy kind of rural existence, pastoral existence. And then, boom, all of, thousands, tens of thousands of people, just all men, almost all of the men, mm-hmm. um, all coming from not just the East Coast of the United States, but from Chile, Argentina, uh, China, Australia, all through the Pacific Rim. So a lot of the first people who came, the first wave of people came from Pacific Rim countries, and then you see the Anglos coming from the East. And it's just a formula for huge disaster. And there's enormous social problems, huge problems with violence, with riots, with um, vigilante uh, actions, um, 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 lynchings. I mean, it was just, it was just a, it was an, a huge disaster from a social perspective. And Hutchings looks at this and he, he's dismayed by it. And I think he starts his, his job publishing. Um, he publishes letter sheets 
that are illustrated. They have a big illustration and then they have some text around them and they were designed for people to mail back home so they could send something back to their family back home. And these letter sheets have moralistic messages in them about society and about um, how how people should behave. What are some codes of behavior that, that minors should be adopting, for example? He published the Minors Ten Commandments, which is a very famous letter sheet that, that a lot of people know about, um, where he describes these codes of behavior and what minors should and should not be doing. Um, and all all of these illustrations that he uses in these letter sheets include very clear depictions of California landscapes that, that make it very um, obvious that California is a place that's different from the Atlantic. And, and he's casting these narratives of what you should and should not do in, in these depictions of California landscapes. So it's very clear that he, Hutchings, is embodying that, you know, he's bringing to California that, those Anglo assumptions about the relationship between landscape society and print technology in his, in his work with the letter sheets. And all of that is happening in the early 1850s. Um, And he, he did, he did start out as a miner. He made enough money as a miner, I think to, to start creating some of these letter sheets and he invests in taking a year of the year of 1853 1854 to travel through all the mines and pick up stories and pick up material and, and get some illustrations. Cause he's, he's got a project in mind to create. It ends up being a magazine, um, the California illustrated magazine, but he's thinking he's going to put together a panorama. That's what he says in his diary. Um, and that is where he gets the first wind of Yosemite is when he's traveling throughout all these mining camps in the northern part of California um, and picking up, talking to people, asking them what are their stories and things like that. He hears about Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, but there, there were people in Yosemite at the time? Uh- yeah, well, Yosemite actually, um, at the exact time that, Anglos first came into Yosemite, it was not densely settled by Native Americans. I mean, we often think that Native Americans, California, Miwok and Mono Indians um, had their villages in Yosemite and then were pulled out by Anglos. But uh, archaeologists say now that that those settlements had existed back in time, but in the 50 years or so before um, the Mariposa Battalion in 1851, that it had been kind of emptied out. And they think that there might have been an epidemic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it was um, part of the territory of Miwok and Mono Indian tribes um, um, who had a, a subsistence lifeway where they would spend the winters in the valleys on either side of the Sierra Nevada mountains where it's warmer. And then um, much like Californiaites and Renoites uh, today, they would go into the mountains in the summer and get away from the heat. And they would, you know, so they had kind of a cyclical life. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of Yosemite was um, a way station for people in that way. It was not a, site of a permanent settlement, but they came and went through the seasons. And um, what happened was that uh, there was an incident, there was an episode in 1851-52, the winter of 1851-52, where uh, there was a trading post on the Fresno River owned by a guy named James Savage. And a number of clans got together and they made a raid on this trading post. And this was the kind of thing that freaked Anglos out completely because, because <laughs> they didn't want to see, you know, they were, they were really afraid of, in, of these different, differing clans getting together and combining together, combining their forces because they would have, if they had been able to do that successfully, they would have put up a much stronger resistance to, to the Anglos who are coming in and and just r- really destroying their life, their livelihoods, and and their lives, and and really 
you know, barbarous ways. Um, so this attack gave Savage and the other people in his neighborhood an excuse to form a battalion. The California state leg- California had just been made a state in 1851. The state legislature um, passed a law that made it uh, the empowered local people to create militias um, to go after Indians and round them up and remove them to um, rancherias or just kill them. And, uh, and so James Savage did this, took the Mariposa battalion into the mountains, chasing after these, um, these uh, various indigenous people. And that was the so-called discovery of Yosemite. That was the, the um, Native Americans drew them into the mountains and, and that, expose them to seeing the valley. Um, and one of the fictions that emerged about Yosemite Valley as part of this kind of battalion situation is, is the fear that Yosemite would become like a stronghold, a mountain fortress mm. for these disparate groups to come together and then mount an attack on um, on the poor, innocent, suffering whites in the valley. Um, there's a very interesting book called Walking Where We Lived by Galen Lee, who, who is a mono Indian who records the narratives of his grandmother and great-grandmother who have an oral history of this event from their, from their perspective, from the Mono and Miwok perspective. And their perspective was that they knew that they couldn't um, fight against the Anglos, but they also knew that if they drew them into the mountains and got them lost, that they might have a chance of escaping from them. Mm-hmm. And so from their perspective, that's what's going on. They're just, they're kind of saying to the Mariposa Battalion, yoo-hoo, we're over here. <laughs> and then they would run, you know, then they were much faster and they knew mm-hmm. the landscape, they knew the territory. Anyway, so... Uh, the reason I go into so much detail about that story is because, again, it's another, it's more complex than just, um, it's more complex than just white people came into Yosemite and emptied it of Native Americans. Um, it's also important because it, it, it ties into things that were happening across California. I mean, the treatment of Native Americans in California is, is really a terrible experience in our history. The um, uh, essentially involuntary servitude and voluntary labor was legislated, made legal by um, this act in 1851 and, and was not repealed until 1868. So technically slavery existed or on the books in California until well after the civil war settled that. Um, And I just think that's a really important, point to make that again um or even from its very beginning yosemite is tied into um processes and dynamics that are happening across the state it is not it is not as we like to think of it as a place that is totally separate from we like to think of yosemite as something that is is untouched by industrialization by modernization by urban um, development or, you know, by, by the less sexy kind of icky parts of the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what I'm trying to s- demonstrate in this book is how deeply tied in it is to all of those things. So mm-hmm. that's, that is what happens in, in 1851, 1852. Um, James Savage was much less interested, it turns out in, um, in, suppressing the so-called rebellion than gathering up a bunch of Indians that he could put to work on a ranch, a barley ranch on the Fresno river. Um, so it was more about creating a labor force that he could subdue than trying to actually, you know, defeat some group of Indians who were, had none, none, no capability or technology of really putting up a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Hutchings hears about Yosemite from from a Mariposa battalion 
um, mm, Thatcher. I see. And he goes, he decides to go down there with some friends of his, um, who he had met on his ship from England to the United States. And they hired a pair of Miwok guides. Uh, they went to, first of all, they went to Savage's trading post and they tried to find people from the Mariposa Battalion who could guide them there. Um, they ended up with some Miwok guides, which were mu- who were much more effective. And um, they took a trip into Yosemite. So the Miwok guides are the ones who who gave Hutchings the idea that the name of Yosemite should be spelled Y-O dash capital S-E-M-I-T-E, which I would pronounce like you were saying, Yosemite. Yosemite, yeah. Yosemite. Um, but uh, anyway, and that's how he spelled it for the rest of his life. But mm. other people changed the spelling right away. Um, and uh, when he got there, he found this landscape that to him uh, just encapsulated everything that a um, – that a landscape that would give a message to Californians about this, the potential for a, a higher and better way of living their lives. And, mm-hmm. and for him, that was a, a huge discovery. So did the higher and better way involve building a hotel? <laughs> Eventually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So how is this higher and better way going to be achieved? If, were people going to come to Yosemite and and thereby be enlightened or awestruck or um, somehow elevated? Well, eventually, yes. But what Hutchings does initially is he um, he creates the media uh, imagery and iconography of Yosemite because the vast majority of people can't get there, um, and they can't get there affordably until about the end of the century. But um, in the when when Hutchings goes in 1855, it's it's a very difficult journey, and it remains a difficult journey well into the early 1860s. So tourism is not his primary goal. His primary goal is to um, is to create this image in people's minds that there is this place, and he is creating this image of a place apart. Um, there is this beautiful place and um as mark stole i i stole this idea from mark stole um points out in an essay in environmental history uh yosemite was a living breathing illustration of the of paradise and milton's john milton's paradise lost mm-hmm. and most um Anglo-Americans and, and Europeans would have instantly recognized that in the description of this valley, in the illustrations of it. Um, it, uh, it It's really stunning. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and then when I read the excerpts in Paradise Lost, it's it, it really is amazing because Paradise is described as a place that's bounded by granite cliffs. There are waterfalls mm. that, that spill off of these cliffs. There's a, a green valley and a mazy river that flows through the valley. I mean, it, it really is um, st- striking how how descriptive Milton's Paradise Lost is of Yosemite. And modern, we moderns don't think of that. We don't grow up learning to recite Paradise Lost, no. but in, any, in the 1850s, the English-speaking world did. So that resonated for them. And Hutchings... Um, had taken an a, an artist Thomas Ayers into into Yosemite, and Thomas Ayers produced these images of the waterfalls and um, and the valley that would have resonated with middle class um, Anglo's at that time as uh, emblems of sublime. This is the the Yosemite waterfall is three times as high as Niagara Falls and Niagara Falls had already become this national symbol of um, a sublime grace for the, for the United States. So Hutchings focuses on the waterfall. He focuses on the, the view from inspiration point of the valley with the cliffs. Um, and he starts telling these story. He starts publishing in newspapers and in his own um, California magazine, how Yosemite is um, 
it's a very, it's a religious experience to go there. You mm-hmm. go there and you have, you fall down on your knees and you can't say anything. Mm-hmm. Even Hutchings couldn't say anything. And he is very voluble. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so he spends, um, almost 10 years, nine years, first of all, promoting Yosemite in print in San Francisco. And he will lead people, um, into the Valley in the summertime, elites in San Francisco who people like William Anderson Scott, who was a um, very well-known minister in the Presbyterian church and who would give sermons on Sunday and talk about how Yosemite was this sign of divine sanction for um, the Anglo project in California. And this was, you know, back in the day, um, back in the 1850s, this was one of the ways that people got their information. They didn't just get it from reading newspapers and magazines. Um, they also got it from going to sermons and listening to ministers or listening to people orate. And so Hutchings knew that he needed to bring these kind of culture makers into the valley and and have their um, uh, sort of imprimatur of authority put on why this place is so important. Um, and to tie back into the idea of social order and, and uh, growing the middle class in California. And after the gold rush, the gold rush starts to wind down or the, the first phase of the gold rush, it winds down in 1853 when Hutchings is, takes that trip. By 1855, um, Mining is becoming increasingly industrialized, hydraulic mining, and it's looking like a factory system, like mm-hmm. on the East Coast. And furthermore, California itself, especially San Francisco, is becoming very industrialized. Um, and so it's becoming it's starting to look more and more like the England that Hutchings left, which was, you know, full throttle into the first industrial revolution, complete with the potential for workers to feel, um, you know, unjustly put upon and start to organize and labor unions and things like that. So these, uh, once again, he's bringing this image of this, of this divine sacred landscape into a um, social world with the hope that this will create the idea that we don't have to just go after gold and we don't have to just go after bonanza and get rich and leave. We can make California into this, a social world that's organized, that's orderly and where middle-class farming families can prosper and thrive. And that's really what he wants to see happen. So for Hutchings, um, that's the message he's trying to get across with Yosemite. Yosemite really quickly gets out of Hutchings hands, of course, and other people pick it up and market it and it just as an icon it just um it just tells san franciscans gives san franciscans this idea that they um they're on the right track they have that what they're doing building their metropolis building their empire building a city on the edge of the pacific rim is the right thing to do because they have all of these resources right there in their backyard, including aesthetic resources, which is what Yosemite becomes. It becomes this, this visual resource um, that things don't have to just stay in, in the, in the grubbing for gold stage. Mm -hmm. So that's important. What kind of people went to Yosemite when it took 10 days by horse to get there or something? Yeah, I'm trying to think like, uh, it's not my image of, uh, sort of uh, Victorian society in San Francisco that you go yeah. up on a horse and travel for 10 days. It's, not, it's rough. It's not an easy place to get to. I mean, today it, you can drive there, but I can imagine trying to hike in. It is rough, but actually those would have been the people, the the sort of elite um, culture makers. And you have to remember that, that in 1850s San Francisco, there were a lot of people who were very wealthy, but they they got there because they knew how to work and they knew, you know, they knew how to put up with the rough um, things. It was, it was hard to get there in the first place. Um, even if you went by ship. Um, and I, you know, and, and people were just, um, they were, they were pretty strong. They were, they were pretty capable of doing that and they liked the adventure. Um, 
so it would have been people who had the means, the the economic wherewithal, mm-hmm. to leave the city for a month, basically, mm-hmm. um, and travel travel by steam steamer and and coach and everything else. Um, and uh, to get to the valley was pretty expensive. It was probably I think I calculated in here somewhere around four or five hundred dollars a person to go and spend a week there, which in 1850s dollars is pretty high. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely it would have been, um, um, it was people like William Anderson Scott. It was people like, um, um, uh, editor named Ewer E W E R who was the editor of the Pacific monthly and, um, just very curious and interested about, California and, and promoting um, California to people. Remember too that a lot of these people who are who are writing and publishing at this time have it in their interest to get people to stay in California. So the narrative of the gold rush, where you come in, you make your you get rich quick, and you go back home, is something that they actually really don't want to see happen. They want people to come to California and fall in love with it and stay and raise their families there, because otherwise they don't have an audience. They don't have they don't have a client base. So there are lots of people in San Francisco who are publishers, or ministers, or you know people like this who are kind of the cultural elite, who want people to stay in California, and they're looking for things that they can latch onto and say, look, California is great. And Yosemite is a big piece of that always has been, you know, since, since Mm -hmm. then until now continues to be a big piece of the message of, of why California is so awesome Mm -hmm. is that it has Yosemite. Um, So yeah, those are the kinds of people who would have made that trip. And that's why actually tourism is not as important in the 1850s as the print and the photography Mm-hmm. Because um, people are consuming Yosemite far more through the media mm-hmm. than they are through actually going there in person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's I a see. good question. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So uh, when was the first effort to actually uh, make it a kind of set aside? I mean, I, I guess one thing in my ignorance I don't understand is uh, did people just walk into the valley and sort of stick a couple of stakes in the ground and say, this is mine? <laughs> Well, in a way, like um, from 1856, so uh, Hutchings goes there in 1855 in the summer of 1855. And then from 1855 until 1864, so nine years, um, various people go in there and try to create a kind of tourist infrastructure to take advantage of this marketing that Hutchings is doing. So they... um, they build things that they call hotels, but they're really tents or, <laughs> you know, um, shacks, kind of a roof where you can sleep under. And so it's a very rudimentary kind of um, infrastructure. They do have alcohol, of course. It's very important um, to get that in there right away. But um, um, I think it is in 1858 that the first hotel is built. Um a, a re- something we would recognize as a hotel, a building with um, two stories and it's made out of wood and, and people can actually go inside a building and lay down on a bed and sleep at night. It's, it's not just camping under cover. Um, and that was called the upper house or the upper hotel. And it had no partitions. It was just a, a bottom story and a top story. And they made, partitions out of cloth and there's a lot of travelers who are coming now at this time in the 1858 who stay there and they make jokes about how amusing it was for the women to to try and undress by candlelight when their shadows would be projected up on Mm, the cloth mm -hmm. and you know how they could you know try and do so relatively modestly anyway um so there's there's a lot of stories about uh, of um, people who are starting to come from the east. People like um, um, Grace Greenwood, who is a very popular writer at that time. She comes out, 
and um, various editors, uh, Horace Greeley from the Springfield Republican comes out, and they all talk a little bit about that hotel. So it's starting to get to be famous. So now you're starting to see people get some interest in Yosemite from beyond California, from the East Coast and, and Boston, Springfield, New York. Um, and then all, all the while, the roads are getting a little bit better, but there still isn't actually a road, like a graded road into the valley, so um, that doesn't that doesn't actually happen until 1874. So there's it's it's very rough to get there, and um, uh, but the idea of setting it aside doesn't emerge until 1864, and it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's kind of um, odd time for it to happen, though. I mean, we're fighting uh, the Civil War at that time, yes. and, and they're paying attention to setting aside a big chunk of wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's really um, intriguing and odd about the story. And one of the things that I, when I saw it, I had the same reaction as you. I was like, what? Really? That's when it happened? <laughs> Weren't there bigger fish to fry? Yeah, exactly. and, what, what, and, and, and so what's up with that, you know, is what I always yep, think. What is, up with, what is up with that? Um, so what happens is um, California has a senator, John Kness, and he is uh, he, he is invited to a meeting with these unknown gentlemen of taste and refinement who say to him, look, there's all this development in Yosemite and um, tourists. He's ta- they're talking now about these rudimentary buildings and this upper hotel and things like that. Um, we think we don't want it to become like Niagara. That's what they say. Niagara Falls had been so overrun with tourist development and people were constantly complaining about how difficult it was to experience the truly sublime um, impact of Niagara Falls because there were all these um, tourist sharks running around. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't want Yosemite to become like Niagara. We need the government to do something about this. Mm. And we propose that the government set it aside from development. And what they're talking about is, is just the valley as it's rimmed by these um, uh, cliffs. And uh, so John Kenneth, this is in, in April of uh, 1864, goes to Congress and says, you know, hey, I propose that we do this, we set this aside. And probably because Congress did have bigger fish to fry, they went, okay, sure, fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it had, there was almost no debate. And, and Abraham Lincoln signed it into law. And... Um, and and what that created was this very interesting phenomenon, which was the Yosemite Grant, which was created by an act of the United States Congress, but technically was the state of California's to administer. Mm-hmm. And so it was, which creates all kinds of interesting, weird legal kinds of relationships, which I I will try not to go into too much detail about, but essentially um, from this, looking at this event uh, in the, in the traditional narrative, the heroic narrative, this is, yay, this is a great step forward for the environment because for the first time, the United States government is actually using its power to (laughs) for good rather than evil, which is the way a lot of environmentalists would say it is um, to set aside land from, from development and, and recognize that it has something special going for it. Right. But from the point of view of the people of California, the something special was sheep grazing or something. I mean, weren't there lots of people using the land? Well, there were, there were, there were, there would be, um, but specifically from Hunting's point of view, what's happening, uh, this becomes, he, first of all, he, th- he thinks this is wonderful. Like what could be better? He's, he, um, in 1864 had just purchased the upper house hotel mm-hmm. and he had decided that he could move his, he could live there year round and he could move his family there and, um, wow. and, and go into the tourism business. I actually think that those two events are connected. Hutchings was very, very public about wanting to do this and his intentions to do it. And I can't imagine what made these gentlemen, these unknown gentlemen, Hmm. feel that they needed to set that landscape aside so suddenly because this tourism development had been going on for almost nine years. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyway, Hutchings... 
um, you know, says, yay, I have this. I, he had filed, he had purchased the hotel and he had filed what's called a preemption claim on 262 acre parcels in the Valley. So what that meant was he didn't own the property. He had a claim to that property. And when that property would become um, surveyed, assuming that he had done what was the traditional process, improved it, made improvements, put buildings on it and so forth, then he would be able to claim title to it as a property. Mm -hmm. So he was doing this and then the grant comes down and now we're not really sure uh, what that means. John Kness told, did not tell the people of, you know, the congressional, um, the Congress that there were property owners in Yosemite. Congress probably would not, would have um, taken another look at this proposal had they thought there were property owners because property was so, you know, vitally important back then. Um, And what ends up happening for Hutchings is uh, he thinks he's going to work with these Yosemite commissioners and everything's going to be great. And they come in a year later and they say to him, well, no, um, you are welcome to lease your property from us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You, you, you can rent your hotel Mm -hmm. from us and, uh, and otherwise you have to leave. And he was astonished by this and fought this tooth and nail all the way to the Supreme court. So when I am talking about this narrative myself, I think about it in terms of California, like you say, the people of California, over against the national government, because I see once again, this narrative, this drama, like the drama of the Mariposa Battalion, being another story about how something that's happening very specific and particular to Yosemite and Hutchings actually in this, in this drama that's playing out between Hutchings and the Yosemite commissioners that goes all the way to the Supreme court, we can see a lot of, other kinds of dynamics that are happening in America after the civil war. Mm-hmm. But I, before I go into that story in too much detail, I want to, I want to go back to, we've been talking about why Yosemite, the, this vision of Yosemite is important to California and, and San Francisco because of the way that it creates the sublime image of paradise in San Francisco's backyard. Mm-hmm. But what is it about the image of Yosemite? Why does that play on a national um, field? Why people who come out to see Yosemite are people like Horace Greeley, but then most significantly is um, Thomas Starr King, who again is a minister. He was a, a very well-known and beloved minister in um, Boston who had written quite a bit about the mountains, the white mountains of New Hampshire. And um, he came to Yosemite in 1861. So right at the beginning of the Civil War, just as the Civil War is breaking out, um, one of these, a person who is very um, respected in the Northeast and also very strongly union, very much um, in support of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And the northern cause in the Civil War starts talking about Yosemite as this again the same thing paradise a divine symbol on and on. But what's really key a really key turning point for Yosemite and on the national and by this I mean northern um, imagination is a year later when. Um, Carlton Watkins takes a series of of amazing photographs of Yosemite. He actually invents a new photographic technology for, for depicting Yosemite landscapes. He creates what was called a mammoth print. He, He has a camera designed and built so that these prints can be big enough to actually show how, amazing this landscape is and these go on display in a studio in New York called Goopels and and the week before these Yosemite photographs were displayed Matthew Brady's photographs of the Civil War mm. had been displayed so 
the very first images that uh, that the people in the northeast are getting of Yosemite come right on the heels of these horrible, horrible images of death and destruction and um, devastation that's happening in the Civil War battlefields. And if you can imagine, um, you see in your mind, or you know, if the listeners can see in their mind, this kind of our our iconogra- iconographic <laughs> iconic view of Yosemite, where we're looking down on the valley, mm-hmm. and we see um, cliffs on either side. What instantly translates into the mind of a Civil War American is the cliffs represent the nation pushed aside, you know, torn apart. Mm -hmm. The cliffs actually run north and south. Mm -hmm. And yet they're united by this beautiful valley with this river winding through it, Mm -hmm. which is the image of paradise. So, so Yosemite becomes this really important image for war-torn Eastern United States of, of a way of redemption, of post-war, how the country can reunite and, and survive this horrible cataclysm. That's, fa- that's a really fascinating. I know we're, yeah. we're, uh, we're almost out of time here. And oh my gosh, no! <laughs> no, you know, that's what happens sometimes with these interviews. Uh, we could go on for a long time, but I feel like uh, the listeners will kill me if I don't ask you to um, describe, and this may be a little bit out of your ken, how we get from a grant mm-hmm. to a national park. Yeah. Well, in three, 30 words or less, right? Well, you know, you can take your time. It's okay. Uh, you, can, you can edit, Marshall. I know, but you take your time. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, from the grant to the national park is, is a is a windy road. And I actually think the more important story is not so much Yosemite grant to Yosemite national park, but Yosemite grant to the national park idea. Mm-hmm. And the national park idea is first embodied in 1872 in yellow, Yellowstone. And partly it's because of Hutchings and Hutchings controversy with Yosemite commissioners that gets the people who see Yellowstone as, as another place that should be set aside for tourism and, and for, for its scenic value to say, you know, for, well, for one thing, Yellowstone wasn't even part of a state at that time. It was a territory, Wyoming. And um, to say, look, this, this grant to the local people thing isn't really working. We just need the national government, the federal government to come in and make national parks national and manage them as part of, the national agenda. So, so that is a short version of the story. And in 1890, um, uh, over, you know, after the a period of controversy, um, and, and agitation, which actually Hutchings himself becomes an advocate for Yosemite becoming a national park. And this is another thing that's a really important piece of my story is that Hutchings has sort of been locked in history as this person who fought against um, the enlightened uh, people who wanted to set aside Yosemite as a, as a sacred place. But um, not only did he do so for some very important reasons, but also after he lost that battle, he um, continued to advocate for Yosemite and he came around, he changed his mind. I mean, this is something that we, people forget about humans in history is that they may have fought very passionately for one idea at one point in time, and then things change. Um, But he was a founding member of the Sierra club Hutchings was, and he fought very strenuously for, for um, um, Yosemite to become a national park. And you mentioned sheep herders. One of the things that um, was happening around the Valley so in the high country and in um, land that I think by that time was becoming forest service land. I'm not sure on the dates on that. It was, it was a kind of landscape that was a commons for people in the valleys on either side of the mountains would take um, mostly sheep, but sometimes cattle as well in the summertime into the high pastures. And these are people who tended to be first generation immigrants from either the Basque country or Portugal or, um, and, or native Americans. And often they intermarried, um, and they, uh, were, they became, they came to be very reviled and, 
and hated by people like Hutchings and John Muir um, because they uh, set fire to the forest understory um, at the end of their season of grazing. Well, first of all, they, they grazed, they grazed the grasses. And then they also, as they were leaving the mountains, they would, they would torch the grass and they um, pick, had picked up this practice from the native Americans who had practiced it years before, you know, time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, People coming from the East Coast of the United States looked at this and they thought this was a horrific, wasteful destruction of this, of the forests, you know, especially the sequoias. And so they felt that um, creating a national park was really essential to stop the grazing and stop um, this kind of a practice mm-hmm. on the public land. And of course, modern science now tells us that, you know, these forests evolved to be fire forests and that they needed that kind of either, you know, natural through lightning or human set fires to, to really be healthy. So, um, once again, you know, 2020 hindsight, we look back and say, well, those traditional practices were more right. But, um, Mm -hmm. if I may, there's one other thing that I think people, um, listening to this might want to know. And that's, um, and that is that, um, Hutchings has, where Hutchings has been um, treated in history at all, he's often been put in opposition to John Muir. And one of the things that I really try to do in telling the story about Hutchings and Muir is not simply reverse the table. So in that, in that heroic narrative that we've talked about, not only was Hutchings seen as this entrepreneur person who just wanted to make a buck off of Yosemite. He's also contrasted with John Muir, who is seen as the person who we all know and love John Muir as this wilderness apostle who created this vision of, of wilderness that was a passionate um, relationship with nature that people could forge in the wilderness. Um, And I, I was never very happy with that dichotomy. And when I, as I was recovering Hutchings story, I didn't want to just flip the tables. I didn't want to just say, well, now Hutchings is the hero and, and Muir is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But, but once again, just like when you look at Yosemite through Hutchings eyes, looking at the relationship between Hutchings and Muir through Hutchings eyes really throws, puts Muir into a different, um, understanding as well. And I think um, brings some of the humanity back to him for sure. He's, he's definitely been kind of um, created as a saint has, has um, been put put up on a pedestal. And I think my story brings him back down a little bit to earth, but not in a way, not in the kind of way that says, you know, oh, well, he's he's a terrible person, because I think Muir is brilliant. Um, but the relationship between Hutchings and Muir is much more of a kind of a generational um, process, where Hutchings approaches the landscape from a particular idea that is born out of his um, upbringing in England and the California gold rush, and he sees landscape as a as scenery. And this scenery is something that people come together and they appreciate and they come to recognize themselves as part of a larger whole. Just like as if you're going to a museum and you're looking at this beautiful painting and you're like, wow, this is an incredible painting. And then you look around you to see the other people who are saying the same thing and you go, oh yeah, we have a lot in common. That's what was going on at that time. It was very conscious It was deliberate. Mm -hmm. And when the United States government set aside Yosemite and um, the first Yosemite commissioners got together and Frederick Law Olmsted wrote the Mariposa Battalion. Sorry, the Mariposa. (laughs) When Frederick Law Olmsted wrote the Mariposa report, he made it very clear that the national agenda for creating this landscape was so that Americans could rediscover what it really meant to be American in this era after the Civil War. So it's about a group identity that is tied to the national northern 
post-solar identity. Muir comes, even though he's there at the same time, he's really, his words really speak to another generation, the later 19th century, which is about a much more individual idea, not a collective, not a communal idea, but how we as discrete individuals can rediscover a a sense of identity and a sense of of the sacred in the wilderness. And he's speaking to people to this much more modern concept of personal identity, which is much more individual and alienated in the urban world. We don't coming into the 20th century, we don't see ourselves so much as part of groups. We see ourselves as, as sort of atomized people. So that's how I see Mir. And the, and the end of the story is really talking about how, Yosemite evolves through Muir into this, um, into this, another kind of icon that has to do with this much more modernized view of the self, um, and that wilderness plays a, a, a very important role in that identity. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it probably played a certain role in my identity when I used to <laughs> hike in Yosemite, and I kind of thought of myself as nature boy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty much the farthest thing from nature boy as I'm from <laughs> industrial farming country, <laughs> city ringed by aircraft factories, yeah. though, though, it, though it's in the middle of the nation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an very interesting thing. And thank you so much for being on the show today. And thank you for writing it. the book. Let me ask our traditional final question to you, Jen. What are you working on now? Well, um, what I believe I'm working on right now is uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm picking up a project uh, that I set aside to finish this book, and it's a project on um, Hawaii and uh, the the Hawaiian uh, kingdom in the 1850s and 1860s created a, a system for adjudicating water claims. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm looking at uh, the water law in the kingdom of Hawaii and how that um, – plays into larger narratives about um, colonialism in the Pacific. Well, it sounds like um, you make it to travel to Hawaii. Now, that would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, I have traveled to Hawaii, so now I have to do all the hard work. (laughs) Oh, I see. Okay, I got you. I got you. Well, I hope you get to travel there again. I mean, but I do. (laughs) I do like to pick. locations for my work yeah there. you've you've done, you've done a really good job at it you know people make fun of me i chose russia to study so i got to go yeah russia's is okay you know it's, it's okay but you know nobody seems to feel sorry for me when i point out that i do go to these exotic places but yeah. i spend my whole day in the library well you know you get some day days are long in hawaii you can spend time <laughs> in the surfing or eating drink, eat, drinking night. having drinks with umbrellas in them <laughs> on the beach or something anyway we've been talking with jen huntley about her terrific new book the Making of Yosemite, or Yosemite, as it is, I call it, uh, James Mason Hutchings and the Origin of America's Most Popular National Park. Jen, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jen Huntley about her new book, The Making of Yosemite, James Mason Hutchings and the Origin of America's Most Popular National Park. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>